This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of October 5. Uh, and on Monday, October 5, we started off our week with the contestants Melissa Smite, a retired history teacher from Thousand Oaks, California. Garrett Marcotte, a software engineer from Santa Monica, California. And Philip Howard, a naval officer from Santa Clarita, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $43,000. And we started off our Jeopardy round with the categories Groups in the Bible, Word Derivations, TV Animals, Restaurants, Two, that's the number two, and Your Heart's Content. Mm-hmm. Your Heart's Content? It was, it was parts of the heart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like the Word Derivations category. Me too. That's always just fun. Yeah. I didn't know the one at the $400 level. Uh, Today, meaning a fruit juice mix, its name is from the Hindi for five, referring to a quintet of ingredients. Um, Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Punch. It turns out it's from the Hindi for five. I I think if I had had to try and come up with a reason that it was called fruit punch, I might have, like, guessed that it had to do with, like, you smash the fruits together. (laughs) Yeah, I... My thought was like, oh, I thought it was just called punch because it kind of like, I don't know, it's punchy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'd never, never thought about that word. Hindi for five, it turns out. And now we know. Now we know. We find the first daily double in your heart's content at the $1,000 level. It's pick number 20. Philip finds it. Uh, he is in second place with 3,600. Garrett's in the lead at 4,800, and Melissa is in the red at negative 200. And he bets it all. Good move. Uh, and he gets the clue. Your heart has a natural this, the sinoatrial node, which emits electrical impulses that cause it to contract. And he guesses what is a regulator, but they're looking for a pacemaker. Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought that word, I thought that clue was worded a little strangely yeah because i mean he said regulator and i'm like well i guess it sort of regulates your heartbeat i don't yeah but i don't know it wasn't given to him later so yeah it would have been a little clearer where they were heading if they had made it more obvious in the wording that there's a connection to you know kind of a a familiar piece of technology although maybe they didn't want it to be obvious it's you know it is a thousand dollar level yeah the only pointer for me there was specifying that it's a natural this Mm -hmm. as opposed to something like an artificial but right yeah i thought that i thought it was a little unclear yeah so at the end of the jeopardy round philip is back up to a thousand melissa's out of the hole at 200 and garrett has extended his lead to 7800 and we get the double jeopardy categories letters from authors at the airport british actresses heads up and off ends with a, A in quotation marks, and radio, then and now. Mm-hmm. I thought the heads up and off category was fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it was. We had a an interesting miss, I guess, at the $1,200 level. Mm-hmm. The clue is, on February 12th, 1554, she got way too much taken off the top. 
hope the near a week and a half as queen was worth it. And Melissa rang in and said, who is Jane? I think specifically to avoid this issue. And Alex mm-hmm. said, be more specific. She said, Lady Jane, Lady Jane Seymour. But that was incorrect. Garrett got the rebound with Lady Jane Grey. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two comes up in the at the airport category at the $2,000 level as the 12th pick. Philip finds this one. He has made it up to 3000 Garrett's at 7800 Melissa is at $3,400. Uh, Philip wagers 2000 and gets the clue Idlewild Wine Bar. And he guesses what is SFO. Um, but the correct response is JFK. Um, and I think Alex noted here that the, the clue, the key would be to know that Idlewild, I guess, was the original name of JFK Airport, which I did not know. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I guessed JFK because for some reason my brain associates Idlewild with New York. Hmm. I don't know why. Hmm. I truly have no idea. <clears throat> so uh, Philip misses that and drops another 2000 on the Daily Double. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes on to find the third Daily Double. It's at the bottom of the Heads Up and Off category. It's pick number 17. He uh, is back up to 2600 and he bets it all because he, I mean, at that point you got to. Garrett's up to 10200 uh, and Melissa's at 2200 And he gets a clue. After his death in 43 BC, this Roman orator made a final appearance on the speaker's platform at the forum. Well, his head and hands did. After giving a pretty heavy sigh, he guesses who is Julius Caesar, uh, but that is Cicero. Mm-hmm. In this game, Philip found all three daily doubles. And, and missed all of them. Missed all three of them, losing a total of 8,200. That is, it's rough. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Garrett has a lock game with 17,000. We saw a couple of really low lock games this week. Philip is in second place with 5,600. Uh, Melissa has 4,600. And we get the final Jeopardy category, Famous Americans. And the clue, Will Smith and Lennox Lewis were pallbearers at this man's 2016 funeral. Melissa has wagered 2,600. And she correctly responds, who was Muhammad Ali? Lennox Lewis was a former heavyweight champion, um, according to the Jeopardy fan. That's not the kind of information I have right at the tip of my tongue. I did know that Will, <laughs> that Will Smith played him. Um, so she's correct and gets up to 7,200. Um, Philip has wagered everything but a thousand and responds, who was Kobe? Um, Garrett has wagered 3,000. Uh, so as not to risk his lock, all he came up with was the letter E. I wonder who he was going to try and scribble down at the last minute. Yeah, I wonder too, but wouldn't have been right starting yeah. with E. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it doesn't matter because he had a lock game. So Garrett is our champion going into Tuesday. And on Tuesday, October 6th, we get the contestants Mandy Friel, a project specialist from Camarillo, California. Claire Marie Murphy, a film advertising executive from Los Angeles, California, and Garrett Marcotte, a software engineer from Santa Monica, California, who just won $14,000. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Talking Front Office Baseball, Words at Their Final Resting Places, Add a Vowel, Potent Portmanteau, (laughs) Yes We Can with Can in quotation marks, and Ken Jennings Knows Mountain Goats. 
just the gimmicky of gimmicky gimmicks. That was a, that was a very tortured category, I thought. Yeah. I mean, good uh, for Ken, I guess. But, but like, yeah, those yeah. were some weird clues. <laughs> they all had to do with mountains, though. Achievements regarding mountains, right? Uh, yeah. And I mean, we got Ken's signature dry humor in there, I guess. Oh, yeah. Which was nice. Mm-hmm. Potent portmanteau were fun for me. Um, mm-hmm. They were the, like, portmanteau names for alcoholic beverages. Yes. Although, okay, at the $800 level, frou-frou drink of vodka, cider, and schnapps. That that was a triple stumper. The correct response is an appletini. I missed that one because who put cider into their appletinis? I wondered the same thing. I was like, I, I've never actually... It's not like I frequently drink them, but to me, it's just the apple schnapps and yeah. vodka or... Yeah, that's it. I- I used to put a little Midori in mine if I wanted to be fancy. Uh, Ooh, if you wanted to get get spicy. (laughs) Midori being that very green, very, I think it's artificial, like um, uh, Japanese melon liqueur. Well, I mean, if if you're going to go with a melon liqueur, then wouldn't that be a a melantini? I mean, I think it depends on your proportion of of sour apple to to Midori. Mm, Um, mm, But yeah, no, I'm I'm not aware of people putting cider into something and calling it an apple teeny. But I don't know. Presumably they fact checked. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure somebody has uh, done that. Oh, in the mountain goats category at the $600 level, uh, though the free rider route takes most people four days, it took Alex Honnold about four hours ropeless and using some holds the width of a pencil to climb El Capitan in this national park. Uh, Mandy rang in and uh, knew that was Yosemite. I knew that because I watched the film free solo. Oh my Lord. That is the most stressful movie I've ever watched. I think I believe that. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Climbing is a pretty common pastime here, but it has never appealed to me to go like to do real free climbing. Yeah. Know? But it was an interesting it was an interesting film. But really only only if you're interested in really stressing yourself out. Um <laughs> who isn't in these days, you know? <laughs> That's what we all need right now. <laughs> That's why I have Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um Daily Double Number One comes up at the $600 level of words at their final resting places. It's the 23rd pick. Claire Marie finds it and wagers 2000 of her 2600 Garrett has 4400 at that point and Mandy has 2200 And Claire Marie gets the clue, mother of the modern day civil rights movement. Um, and she correctly responds, who is Rosa Parks? So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Garrett is in the lead at 6,200. Claire Marie has 5,400. Mandy has 2,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Historical hodgepodge. 1990s best picture by tagline. Enzymes and amino acids. Speed reading. Religion. And corporate lingo. That corporate lingo category was kind of, kind of hard. Well, I guess it was a double jeopardy. I, I should say it was. It, it seemed more appropriate for double jeopardy difficulty, I think, than than a, some of the some of the categories we've been having lately. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I know there's going to be a a variation, and you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. But mm-hmm. I have I have felt that some uh, a number of the boards 
recently have been a bit more gettable than... Yeah, the Jeopardy and the Double Jeopardy boards don't feel as clearly differentiated as they sometimes are. Hmm. This one, though, was pretty good. Yeah. We get Daily Double number two in the 1990s Best Picture by Tagline category at the $2,000 level. Mandy finds this one. Uh, she is in third place at 4400 behind Clamoury's 6600 and Garrett's 7400 She would use 1500 She gets the clue. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. Uh, and she she doesn't know that she takes a guess what is natural-born killers, uh, but that is unforgiven. Mm-hmm. Did natural-born killers win a Best Picture? I don't think so. I have not completely memorized the Best Picture winners, but they are a good thing to memorize. That's something I'm working on. Um, and if somebody has their Best Picture Oscars memorized cold, then you start this category knowing there are 10 options. Right. And um, with each one that gets taken off the board, you you narrow it down. Yeah. Daily Double number three comes up in the speed reading category as the 10th pick at the $1,200 level. Uh, Garrett finds this one and wagers 4,000. Uh, Claire Marie has 6,600 at this point and Mandy has 2,900. Um, so this is going to take him into a pretty commanding lead if he gets it right, although um, it's early in the round. He gets the clue. It's the four-letter title of Lisa Patton's novel about students caught up in the frenzy of matching students with sororities. And he correctly responds, what is Rush? Yeah. And uh, takes a pretty solid lead at that point, although um, Claire Marie makes makes a bit of a comeback toward the end of the round. Yeah, she she closes the gap to uh, to kind of make it a game going into into final. So, uh, going into final, Garrett's in the lead at 18,200, Claire Marie's at 13,800, and Mandy is at 3,300. They get the category Geography Fun. Don't you tell me what's fun, Jeopardy writers. <laughs> and they get the clue, it's the largest country in area that begins and ends with the same letter. Uh, Mandy bet everything. And uh, she guessed what is Algeria. That is incorrect. Though Algeria is one of the larger countries in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not a bad guess. However, Claire Marie wagered 13,000. Very big bet. She gets it right with what is Australia. So she jumps up to 26.8. But Garrett also got it correct. What is Australia with uh, enough to cover that and then some. He wagered 9,500. So he wins with $27,700. Mm-hmm. I got to Australia in time, but first I got stuck on Argentina for a while. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is not a bad guess, uh, because no. it is just two spots behind Australia um, in terms of the uh, countries ranked by area. Oh, wow. Yeah. How about that? So on Wednesday... We get the contestants Holly McQuillan, a market research analyst from Woodland Hills, California. Sheldon Beverly, a commercial senior property manager originally from Franklin, Louisiana. And Garrett Marcotte, a software engineer from Santa Monica, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $41,700. And the Jeopardy! categories are history, miscellany, animated films, the state was in play, Magazine's first issues and in order. All correct responses will be made up of letters from the word order. Man, those 
those categories always frustrate me. I had I had one, I don't remember which game it was in, but it was in Ovation. And it's mm, taken yeah. from letters from the word Ovation. Mm-hmm. Man, I don't know. I don't know why that is so tricky for me, but it is. Yeah. Yeah, I had a hard time with some of these. I was able to get the 200, someone who accomplishes things as a doer, and the 400, fish ova is row. And then at the 600, Mor- Morgan Freeman played him in the Shawshank Redemption. I know that that's red, but somehow I thought rod for a second. I don't know. Um, which also fits. <laughs> it does, yeah, it fits the category. <laughs> How can there be so many possible wrong answers when you only have five letters to work with? Uh, at the 800, uh, Chalcosite is one that's or. Mm-hmm. Um, that was coming to me, but I, I didn't quite get it in time. And then a canal links this river with the Vistula, uh, that is the Odor, O-D-E-R. Um, I couldn't remember that one in time either. Yeah, me neither. I gotta do rivers. Gotta go through rivers again. Yeah. The whole the state was in play category felt very topical. Yeah. Yes. How many different ways can we uh, point out the closeness in voting yeah. throughout history, mm-hmm. American history? Yeah. Anyway, we get the first daily double in the state was in play. At the $600 level, uh, Garrett finds it, and he wagered 2500 of his 4400 He was in a pretty good lead. Holly was at 1600 and Sheldon was in the red at negative 400 He got the clue, like many states in 1960, this one was close when native son Richard Nixon beat JFK by just 35000 And he remembers that Nixon is from California. Mm-hmm. Palo Alto, I believe. No, Yorba Linda? Where is he from? Nixon born. Yorba Linda. I learned in the animated films category that uh, the name in Israel of the film we know as Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is It's Raining Falafel. <laughs> I love Which, that. you know, I'd, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> Give me that falafel. Yeah, me too. I guess last thing before we go on to Double Jeopardy is that the $600 level of history sort of felt like salt in the wound for Anakin Garcia. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tradition says, here's the roughly 25-mile route uh, Pheidippides ran in 490 BC, bringing news of victory to Athens from this plane, whose name is known beyond ancient history. Um, that's Marathon. Yeah, I realize it's been like a over a year since we taped it, but that that did feel pretty pretty recent to me. It's yeah, like, it's a six hundred dollar Jeopardy round clue, and we had it at final. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Garrett is well in the lead at ninety one hundred. Holly is at sixteen hundred, and Sheldon is back at zero. And they get the double Jeopardy round categories: the librarian invasions. Alliterative business, what's in a name, W-A-T in quotation marks, Latin lover needed, Europe, and Wordsworth at 250. I really liked this board. Mm -hmm. First of all, we had my all-time favorite television show at the $400 level of the librarian invasions. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is great. Everyone should watch it. Mm -hmm. But I guess fictional librarians are kind of my thing. Um, as things go it's pretty innocuous (laughs) yeah 
music man at $800 level. We never saw the $1,200. I'm sort of curious what was at the $1,200 level. At the $2,000 level of the librarian invasions, we had the clue, Lucian becomes chief librarian of the dreaming in this Neil Gaiman comic book series with a one-word title. Garrett rang in and missed this one. He guessed Cryptonomicon. Um, It was not his only miss where he like clearly knows a lot about like sci-fi fantasy graphic novels um but maybe got into the weeds a little bit Mm -hmm. um this is sandman um and i cannot recommend sandman highly enough it's a great series very graphic those are graphic novels i have to make sure my kids don't get near because like (laughs) they have pictures um yeah the stuff nightmares are made of yes uh yeah it it gets very intense yeah, but those are those are incredible books. Uh, Daily Double number two comes up at the $2,000 level of alliterative business. It's the 20th pick. And uh, we've been finding in this category businesses like PayPal, Coca-Cola, Chuck E. Cheese. All right. Anyway, uh, so we get to the $2,000 clue uh, and the Daily Double is there. Sheldon finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with $2,000. Um Great move uh, because Garrett is at 15,100 at this point and Holly is at 5,200. So a true daily double is really the way to go. Unfortunately, it doesn't go his way. He gets the clue. In 1987, founders Leonard Feinstein and Warren Eisenberg added the third element to the name of this home goods superstore. Uh, Sheldon can't think of anything. He says, what is, um, and then runs out of time. Uh, the correct response here is bed, bath, and beyond. That, yeah, that was a hard, I thought that clue was pretty hard. I did not get there at all. Cause like added the third element immediately puts me in the mindset of the periodic table. Mm. And then I'm thinking, okay, what home good superstore has like elements in its name? Yeah. Oh, I guess you'd start thinking, would you start thinking about like silver and gold then? Like, yeah, some, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I got nowhere with it. Yeah. I you said I, Bed Bath & Beyond. I was like, oh. I was focused right. on alliterative and then went to Home Goods Superstore and then Bed Bath & Beyond seemed obvious from there. Yeah. But I could see that if you trip over element, that could, that could send you down the wrong route. Uh, the third daily double shows up in my favorite category of this game, Wordsworth at 250. Was it really your favorite? No. Okay. <laughs> it was a bunch of things like, uh, I mean, there, there were a couple of guesses that I made that turned out to be right, but the whole time I was like, well, I just, uh, I have no reference point for this. Uh, anyway, the daily double showed up at the $1,200 level and Garrett finds this one as well. He's in a commanding lead at 16,300 over Holly's 5,200 and Sheldon zero, and he wagers 4,000. He gets the clue, this romantic poet and lord was not a huge fan of William and called him Turdsworth, which is just like primo. <laughs> yes. Very well done. mature, great artists of our time. Yes. And as we all know, as everyone would know... If, if there had been a clue about Greece, it would have pointed everyone to Lord Byron, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, but Garrett does get it with Lord Byron. Yep. Alex said you had, you, you know, you had a choice. You picked the right one. Uh, the other choice here would be uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Lord Tennyson. Um, and I 
think without sort of deeper familiarity, you're kind of coin flipping here. Mm-hmm. Although Byron seems to me to be the less dignified of the two. Yeah, so, he seemed like a <laughs> I would, more loudmouthy kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. So that's I, I think that uh, that would that would have tipped me toward Byron also. Um, mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Garrett has a lot game again uh, with twenty three thousand five hundred. Um, Sheldon has sixteen hundred, and Holly has five thousand two hundred. So it's really been Garrett's night, and we get the final Jeopardy category: Who said it in the Bible? And the clue is, he tells his son not to worry about the lamb for the burnt offering. God will provide it. Uh, Sheldon has wagered zero um, and guesses who is Jacob. That is not correct. Holly has wagered a thousand. She just writes a, uh, a nice message who is, this was so much fun. Thank you. Garrett guesses who is Job. The correct response here is Abraham. And uh, we talked about that a little bit in my Genesis deep dive. We did. Yeah. We did indeed. Yeah. Uh, and again, we, we get kind of like the uh, a prime example of, like we mentioned last week, contestants are expected to know Christianity and sort of like the Judaism that leads up to Christianity mm-hmm. in a much more deep way than anything else. When Alex is like, no, it's Abraham. And I'm sure everyone on stage was like, okay. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, I All right. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Garrett was really playing for that lunch mm-hmm. on this Wednesday game. Yeah. Which brings us into Thursday. So on Thursday, we have the contestants, Amy Judd Lieberman, an attorney originally from Quakertown, Pennsylvania. Kevin Walsh, a story analyst originally from Williamstown, New Jersey. And Garrett Marcotte, a software engineer from Santa Monica, California, who is now up to 63700 And we get the Jeopardy round categories. The $1 bill. Beer slash me. Word origins. Sports awards. Three things about the president. And nursery rhymes. And I did not get to watch this one because it was preempted by Thursday Night Football. Uh, Which, I mean, I enjoyed watching the Bears beat Tom Brady. Those were two good things in one place, but Mm -hmm. uh, I did not get to watch Jeopardy. Yeah. I don't know. It felt like it felt like a better game than uh, has been. It has been. Yeah. The nursery rhymes category was harder than you would think. I mean, like it's nursery rhymes. How tricky can they be? You know, and the contestants did okay with them. Um, and they they only missed the thousand dollar level, but I, I thought you know it it was surprisingly difficult. This guy is on a strict no fat diet. His wife is on a no lean diet. Uh, that's um, Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. I don't know if they put that one in books anymore. Maybe not. I don't know. I have, I don't have a nursery rhyme book for my kids. Yeah. uh, It is hard when, because things like nursery rhymes and, and really anything that has kind of like a a consistent meter or like are easily memorized Mm -hmm. when it jumps in at the middle and just takes pieces out of it. It's a lot harder to just be like, Oh yeah, that's that. than to be like, Oh wait, I recognize that. Now I have to work my way through getting to that point right exactly um yeah so the thousand dollar that uh was a triple stumper this fellow was under a haystack fast asleep that is uh little boy blue and they gave us the very end but uh but you get his name from the beginning little boy blue come blow your horn Mm -hmm. all right we find uh daily double number one in three things about the president at the 800 dollars level this is the 17th pick and garrett finds it 
And he makes it a true daily double with 2,400. He's in third place at this point uh, with Kevin at 2,600 and Amy at 3,000. So he's looking to take the lead and he gets the clue. Civil governor of the Philippines, secretary of war, wrote opinion on Myers versus United States. And he correctly responds, who is Taft? I did not have that one. Yeah, uh, the... I mean, wrote opinion on Myers v. United States was was kind of the giveaway for me. Does that oh. would suggest he is a judge as well? Yes. Yeah. But uh, I knew, I remembered from my prep that he was governor of the Philippines for a while. Mm-hmm. Somehow wrote opinion in my mind just sort of morphed into something about like a lawyer like a, who, like a lawyer who argued in front of the Supreme Court. Oh, oh um, I thought like, which is he wrote an op-ed. Yeah. Um, no, somehow, somehow I saw that the like the case caption and and somehow just just interpreted the whole line as lawyer. But yeah, if you if you don't do that and see that he says Supreme Court justice, that is the giveaway, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Garrett is at seven thousand. Kevin's at 4,400 and Amy is at 2,400. And we get the double Jeopardy round categories. James Bond. Diamonds are forever. Doctor, no. There's a, there is a comma. There's a comma in there. <laughs> in there and an exclamation point. Uh, the world is not enough. Die another day. Uh, die is spelled D-Y-E here. And your four eyes only, I in quotation marks, there will be four of the letter I in each correct response. Yeah, I, another another category where I was like, how how many words do have four eyes in it? But apparently at least five of them. Yeah. Yeah, they started having a hard time with those at the at the sixteen hundred dollar level. They um they did fine with um uh the state that is nicknamed the Magnolia State is Mississippi. The re- Returns where profits eventually lessen with additional investment are diminishing returns. Um, inflammation of the gums is gingivitis. But then um, at the $1,600 level, look it up online. In Hawaiian, this double talk word means quickly. Um, and that is wiki wiki. So look it up online was the hint there. And then at the $2,000 level from the Latin for nothing, it's an adjective for someone who's totally down for anarchy. And Garrett rings in with what is a nihilist. He was on the right track, but nihilist only has three uh, letter I's. So you have to make this nihilistic. Mm-hmm. Um, Adjective. Yes. yes. We get daily double number two in The World is Not Enough at the $1,600 level. Garrett finds it and he wagers 4000 of his 11000 Kevin is just ahead of him at 11200 and Amy is back at 3600 He gets a clue. In a Larry Niven novel, a motley crew of explorers travel to this ribbon-like world that encircles a star. And Garrett guesses is what is Discworld. And I think you mentioned earlier about like his having good knowledge of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is actually Ringworld. Discworld is... Is that Ursula Le Guin? It's Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett. Right? I think of Earthsea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Terry Pratchett is... Yeah. Yeah, Earth, Earthsea is, is Ursula Le Guin. I mean, just, you know, portmanteaus. Two words shoved mm-hmm. into each other, right? Yeah. That's all sci-fi is. 
It's yeah. like, take two things and put them together. No, mm-hmm. it's sci-fi. Just kidding. I, I love sci-fi. I'm not hating on sci-fi. Mm-hmm. What's that what's N.K. Jemisin series everybody's reading right now? Oh, Broken Earth. I guess that's not a that's not a compound okay. word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it feels like it fits. Um, yeah. I don't, I'm not super familiar with Ringworld, um, but Discworld is like a kind of a huge series. Yeah. Um, many, many titles in that one and well-loved. It's all kind of tongue in cheek. I've re- I've read one. I'm told that I started with the wrong one. I didn't love it. Somebody recommended that I start with, because there's like, it's all, it's, there are, it's all set in one world, but you can kind of follow different characters through and the storylines intersect and, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, so I sort of picked one at random and somebody said, oh, I don't really like those characters. You should try this other, this other title as a starting point. So hmm. I might come back to it sometime. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Daily Double number three is at the $1,200 level of Diamonds Are Forever. Kevin finds it as the 24th pick. And he wagers twelve hundred. Um, Garrett has six thousand two hundred at that point, and Amy has six thousand four hundred. I mean, I guess I guess they've got a few clues left, so things things are still going to shift around. But twelve hundred feels to me like risking your lock for not that much gain. Yeah. With with several clues left to go, I guess it doesn't matter that much. Um, yeah. Anyway, he gets the clue. When it comes to grading diamonds, the four C's are cut, color carrot and this and he correctly responds what is clarity Mm -hmm. Um, which gives him a little bit of a boost up to 14,400 so at the end of that double jeopardy round kevin has uh, moved up a little bit further and gotten himself in a lock position at 15,600 which uh, like you mentioned not not a particularly high lock but that's how it is, because Amy is at 7,600 and Garrett is at 7,000. And they get the final Jeopardy category, the Americas. And the clue, home to more than 20 million people and three different official languages, this island is about 600 miles from the continental U.S. Garrett wagered 1,000, got it correct with what is Hispaniola. Amy wagered all of her 7,600 and also got it correct with what is Hispaniola. And... Kevin wagered 300, not risking his lock, and guessed what is Bermuda. So, yeah, good thing he was in a lock position, because he was the only one to miss it. But mm-hmm. he still is the winner. Yep. So on Friday, we have Sabrina Merchant, a sports writer from Los Angeles, California. Brian Semmel, an associate producer originally from Armonk, New York. And Kevin Walsh. A story analyst originally from Williamstown, New Jersey, whose one-day cash winnings total 15300 And we get the Jeopardy round categories, Where Am I?, Numbers of Things, Snap, Crackle, or Pop, The Work's Original Language, Television, and Be Good, B-E-E in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. And in that Be Good category, we had... Um, we had a reversal at the $600 level 
the clue was in Paradise Lost, he's Satan's number two. Uh, Brian rang in and said, who is Beelzebub, which was initially accepted. But after the break, they reversed that um, and took away 1200 the 600 he'd won and the 600 for a wrong answer. Um, because Beelzebub is not the correct pronunciation. You, he, he had reversed the Z and the L. Uh, this is the correct response here is Beelzebub. Uh, which means Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Very topical. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's enough of that from me now. Um, I liked the works original language category, mostly because it made me feel good about getting them all right. But Yeah, that's a good category. Yeah, good angle. Um, I was pleased with myself for knowing the original language of Pippi Longstocking at the $1,000 level. Uh, that's in Swedish. Uh, Kevin got that one. Yeah. Don't remember where I learned that. I feel like I learned it very recently. Probably on a trivia show of some kind. Yeah. I've, I've uh, come down on Brian for mispronouncing Beelzebub. So let me um, mention... In the Where Am I category at the $1,000 level, um, Sarah was on site for a video clue. Um, uh, the text was, I'm at this premier U.S. art and design college in New England, a leader in attracting extraordinary creative people since its founding in 1877. Um, he rang in and said, what is RISD? Which makes me think he has some like personal connection. Um, mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but my, my sense is that people who like go there, um, or sort of are familiar with the school call it RISD, um, which stands for the Rhode Island School of Design. Yeah. I would never think to pronounce it, to, to actually make it an acronym and say RISD. Yeah. Um, I had, uh, my grandmother lives in Providence. And so like going to like the RISD museum was a thing, or, you know, we knew people who had gone to school at RISD. But yeah, I think you kind of have to be familiar with it on a, on a more personal level to refer to it, refer to it that way. Yeah, probably. Uh, the daily double shows up pretty late in the round. It's pick number 26. It is at the $800 level of the works original language. Kevin finds it and he wagers 1800. He's in a good lead at 7,800 over Brian's 2,600 and Sabrina's 3,400. And he gets the clue Kafka's the metamorphosis, which was moving on from the $600 clue, which was Ovid's Metamorphoses. Oh, that was, uh, so that's a fun connection. I missed that. Making, making that connection there. So Kafka's Metamorphosis was originally written in German, and Kevin got that right. Mm-hmm. Let me just uh, pause one more for one more thing, which is that we had salt in the wound for Anarchy uh, earlier this week with Marathon, and then in numbers of things at the $600 level today, we have salt in the wound for me. Uh, this septet includes the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. Uh, that is the seven one- ancient wonders of the world. Sabrina got that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not bitter. Not bitter. Not bitter at all. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Kevin is up to 11,400. Brian is at 2,600 and Sabrina is at 3,400. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories, Modern World Before and After, Oxford Alumni, Churches and Cathedrals, The Doctor Will See You Now, with the letter C in quotation marks, Billboard Top 40, and Hittites. Which is mm-hmm. funny. Billboard Top 40 Hittites. <laughs> oh, yes! Yes, you're right. I, uh, I hadn't put that together. Um, not doing so well picking up on the puns right now. Uh... These guys rolled right through the modern world before and after 
category. Yeah, they, they did well. They each got some. All of them were answered correctly on the first try. Nice work. And these were fun ones, I thought. Mm-hmm. They were very fun. I think maybe my favorite was the $400 level eternal slogan for the homeland of Marvel's Black Panther and his favorite mall retail clothier uh, that is Wakanda Forever 21. It's a different Um, kind of storm. Yes. Yeah. I like the $1,200 clue. It's the term for when Skeletor's enemy, you know, that Masters of the Universe guy, condescendingly clarifies to women. That is He-Mansplaining. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh. We had Daily Double number two in the Oxford Alumni category at the $1,200 level. Brian found this one and wagered 3000 of his 5400 Kevin was up to 13800 at this point, and Sabrina uh, also had 5400 Brian gets the clue. We assume he was wearing a different kind of robe when he received his undergraduate degree in 1910. Um, There was a photograph. Brian did not recognize the photograph. He said, I don't know. Um, This was Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. And was Alex chiding him? Sort of. Yeah, he said you should have known that. He, He said you should have known that. I didn't know if he was initiating scolding or if he was trying to, like interpret brian's facial expression yeah like commiserate or yeah that was a that was weird yeah i mean whatever it's it's alex he's Mm -hmm. he says what he says yep and the third daily double shows up in the doctor will see you now category pick number 13 sabrina finds this one it's at the 1600 dollar level she is at 7400 Kevin's up at 17400 and Brian's at 2400 So she, and she wagers 4000 uh, Move herself within reach-ish. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and she gets the clue, Hermes Wand, this symbol of the U.S. Army Medical Corps, is a staff with two serpents coiled around it. Uh, and she does not offer an answer or a response, but that's a caduceus. Or caduceus, depending on how you want to Americanize it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew that. Oh. Yeah. Now I do. Yeah, so uh, each con- each contestant got one, hit one of the daily doubles, um, but Kevin got his. Brian and Sabrina missed, missed theirs those. with larger bets. Um, really, the whole game just belonged to Kevin. Um, yeah. Brian and Sabrina each had some good gets and, you know, played... Played a played a um, a respectable game, but Kevin really just owned the board this game. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Kevin is in a lock position with twenty three thousand eight hundred. Sabrina has six thousand six hundred. Brian has five thousand two hundred, and we get the final Jeopardy category: books of the nineteen fifties. And the clue: a special edition of this nineteen fifty three novel came with an asbestos binding. Brian has wagered 5,200, everything he has, um, and guesses what is Invisible Man. Sabrina wagered 1,399. She is looking to land $1 above Brian's pre-Final Jeopardy score if she gets it wrong. Um, She guesses what is Brave New World. She's in the right genre, but the wrong title. Uh, She has deduced that we're looking for like a like kind of a dystopic sci-fi 
Uh, but that's not correct. Uh, Kevin has wagered 3,800 so that if he misses, he's going to drop down to a nice round 20,000. Mm-hmm. He correctly responds, what is Fahrenheit 451? Book burning being kind of the, the major kind of plot element or part of the part of the premise of Fahrenheit 451. Um, asbestos is a like a fireproof material. Um, yeah. So that's the the novelty there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kevin is our winner with 27,600 and we'll see him again on Monday. Yes, we will. And this is the time when we might normally um, plug our Patreon, although honestly, we, we did that for like, what, like two months? <laughs> um, we, we did that for about as long as we've been doing this, so yeah. normally is now just what we do. Yeah. <laughs> now is the time when we mention that we have a Patreon and that supporting media you, you care about is good and something you should do if you have the bandwidth, um, but more important is doing something good for uh, for the world around you and the important social justice movements that are happening in our world right now. We have before and will again point you to um, uh, communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com as two places where you can find a way to connect. And uh, we're going to remind you again to make sure you're registered to vote. Check your voter registration. Make your voting plan. Yes. And if you've already voted, good for you. Yeah, thanks for being voters, guys. And, and if you haven't People, yet, still good friends. for you. Yeah, chums. <laughs> oh, I still have not excised guy from my vocabulary, although we now learned where it came from from my in my uh, in my personal pronouns deep dive. So that was uh, that's that's always fun for me now. Anyway, be a voter and wear your mask over your mouth and your nose, please, mm-hmm. and keep it on when you talk. Yeah, that's the. Main point there. Mm-hmm. I keep seeing people wear a mask and then take it off so they can speak more clearly. Pull it down. Um, you are, when you are speaking, you are producing exponentially more respiratory droplets than when you're just breathing. So you've got to keep the mask on when you're talking. I know it's annoying, but it's important. Yep. All right. Uh, and that concludes the scolding portion of the show. Um, it's literally what I do for my job, so I'm okay at it. <laughs> Um, Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I have too many deep dive guesses. Yeah, there was a lot this week. There was a lot this week. Um, so my first guess is it's so hard to pick. There were a lot of them that are like, oh, that could be something. Are you talking about Cicero? I'm not talking about Cicero, but I did consider it. Okay. Are you talking about John Calvin? I am not, but I also considered that, of course. (sighs) Oh, there's so many good choices. Okay, my third one is... I'm really rooting for you here. Are you going to talk about Lawrence of Arabia? I'm not. Oh, dang it. All right, what are we talking about? Okay, so Wednesday's game. The category is the state was in play, and at the $1,000 level, a thousand votes in Nevada separated Samuel Tilden and this man in 1876. I don't know. It just, it felt topical, you know, with the election coming up. Uh, that there was this this category and this and this clue about um, kind of the the uh, most notoriously contested election presidential election in American history. Um, so we're going to talk about Rutherford B. Hayes, um, and in particular the election of 1876. But I'll I'll do a, like an overview of Rutherford B. Hayes, and okay. uh, yeah, talk about election of 1876, compromise of 1877. 
if in fact the Compromise of 1877 existed, which is contested. Oh. Yeah. So, Rutherford B. Hayes, Rutherford Burchard Hayes, uh, was born on October 4, 1822, in the small town of Delaware, Ohio, to parents Rutherford Hayes Jr. and Sophia Burchard. Although I guess I should note, those were his parents, but his father died while his mother was pregnant with him, so he never knew him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the family had moved to Ohio from Vermont in 1817, so they have New England roots. But uh, Hayes was born and raised in Ohio and deeply associated with it. Mm-hmm. He was the youngest of four, but one older sibling had died before he was born. And his older brother, Lorenzo, dr- died in a drowning accident in 1825. Oh. Um, so the two surviving children of the family were Fanny and Rutherford, who were raised by their mother, who did not remarry. Um, her brother Sardis did live with the family for some time and sort of functioned as a father figure to Rutherford, who was nicknamed Ruddy. He attended local schools um, from 1830 to 1835 um, and then was sent at Sardis's insistence to um, Norwalk Seminary, a Methodist boarding school in Ohio for a year, um, and then to Middletown, Connecticut to attend the Webb School, which was a preparatory school. He returned to Ohio uh, to attend Kenyon College in 1838, graduated with highest honors in 1842, and gave the valedictorian address. He read law, uh, which is one of the ways you could enter the legal profession. Um, uh, it's kind of like a like a law apprenticeship um, mm-hmm. in Columbus, Ohio, briefly. I think it's different from like when the UK university system talks about reading a subject and then that, and that's like your you know your field of study in university i think this is i think that's a, i think it's different but i don't really know um but then he moved to massachusetts to attend harvard law um graduating in 1845 he returned to ohio and was admitted to the ohio bar he opened a law office in lower sandusky ohio um in 1847 he was diagnosed with They thought it was possibly tuberculosis, and his doctors recommended a change of climate. He considered enlisting in the Mexican-American War to get a change of climate, which sounds bonkers to me. Um, (laughs) War sounds nice to improve my health. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's it's known for that. Instead, he traveled to New England and uh, then um, went on a long journey to Texas and back. I believe, to visit law school colleagues. On returning to Ohio, he decided to move to Cincinnati. His law practice in Lower Sandusky had been kind of slow to get off the ground. He was more successful in Cincinnati. He started his law career doing real estate law, um, but subsequently became sort of shifted his focus and became a prominent criminal defense attorney. He successfully used the insanity defense, um, resulting in his client going to a mental institution rather than being executed. He was also known for defending enslaved people who had escaped and were being tried under the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, he says he defended over 40 such individuals, yeah. although uh, the records are incomplete. There are only um, there are only written records of two of those. Um, During this time, he courted and married Lucy Webb in 1852. His first three sons were born over the course of 1853 to 1858 during this phase of his career. Uh, Burchard, Webb, and Rutherford. 
Um, <laughs> very, very original creative. Yes. Yeah. All of those are right there in the names of him and his family. In 1858, he was appointed city solicitor um, to complete the term of um, someone who had left their seat vacant. I don't remember the circumstances of that exactly. Um, but then he was elected the next year to a full two-year term. In 1861, he uh, ran for re-election as city solicitor and was defeated. Um, Cincinnati had a huge shift toward Democrat and know-nothing candidates in the wake of the South seceding from the Union. When the Civil War started later that year, he joined a volunteer unit. He was commissioned a major in the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry on June 27th. His fourth child, Joseph, uh, was born in December 1861. He was away at war at the time. During the Civil War, he served in Western Virginia and the Shenandoah. Reasonably successful military career, a number of promotions. Um, he sustained several injuries, none too terribly serious. Um, I believe he was shot in the arm. He had like an ankle injury from falling off a horse. There was maybe, there were maybe a couple others notable, but, but not life threatening. In 1863, his family visited his army encampment and his son, Joseph, very young at the time, died likely of dysentery. Another son, George, was born in 1864. He was still away at war at that time. In 1864, he was uh, nominated to run as a Republican for the House of Representatives. And he declined to leave his post to campaign. He said, an officer fit for duty who at this crisis would abandon his post to electioneer for a seat in Congress ought to be scalped. Um, uh, he wrote some letters and some people campaigned on his behalf and he was elected to the House of Representatives where he served until 1867. Um, he voted for the 14th Amendment, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the Tenure of Office Act. Uh, he resigned in July 1867 to run for governor of Ohio. In September 1867, his only daughter, Fanny, was born. He won his election as governor and was inaugurated in January 1968. His seventh child, Scott, another son, was born in 1871. I didn't find too, too much about his, uh, his time as governor. It seems like, it seemed like he was, like it was, um, his power was limited and he was a Republican governor with like a democratic legislature and it was hard to get much done in 1872. Oh, he was reelected. His uh, second term ended in 1872 and he planned to retire from politics at that point. Colleagues urged him to run for the Senate, but he declined. He turned down an appointment as um, assistant U S treasurer, um, he ran for the House of Representatives again, but lost that election. In 1873, another son was born. This one was named Manning. Uh, Manning died in 1874. And in 1875, he came out of retirement, ran as governor o of Ohio again, and won the first person to win a third term as the governor of Ohio. Winning another term as Ohio governor um, sort of elevated his uh, his political prospects Um and brought him into consideration for the presidential nomination. So uh, the Republican convention was in Cincinnati. James G. Blaine of Maine was considered the favorite to win, but he could not get a majority. So Hayes ended up winning the nomination on the seventh ballot. 
And the convention selected Representative William Wheeler of New York as the vice presidential nominee, someone that um, Rutherford B. Hayes had not heard of mere months before the convention. Nice. Uh, The Democratic nominee was Samuel Tilden, who was the governor of New York. Uh, He was noted for prosecuting machine politicians in New York and sending Boss Tweed to jail. I think you may have mentioned him. Um, Yeah. Uh, This was a contentious campaign. There was mudslinging from both sides and the outcome of the election was disputed. There were a number of anomalies. Colorado had been admitted to the union in 1876, but too late to organize an election. So uh, a state legislature was in place and the state legislature selected the three electors from Colorado who uh, cast electoral votes for Hayes. Um, That part was not really disputed, but I don't know. You're from Colorado, and there was some Colorado election trivia there, so I thought that was relevant. Um, We're the centennial state, yeah. 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 Uh, Samuel Tilden unambiguously won the popular vote um, with 4.2 million to 4 million votes. Samuel Tilden won 184 uncontested electoral votes, and Hayes won 165 uncontested electoral votes. However, 185 electoral votes are necessary to win. Tilden was one shy, and there were 20 disputed electoral votes. Hayes would eventually end up being awarded all 20, but let's uh, let's pause and hear about what's going on with those. So Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina were all disputed, um, with each major political party claiming that they had won. There was widespread voter suppression of freedmen and Republicans by um, uh, the KKK and similar organizations. There was voter fraud. Um, the most egregious instance of that was in South Carolina, where ballots were cast uh, reflecting 101% of eligible voters voting. <laughs> um, there were also ballot design problems Um Perhaps unintentional, perhaps intentional. Um, symbols were typically printed onto ballots to aid illiterate voters. And in South Carolina, many uh, Democratic ballots were printed with a picture of Abraham Lincoln, which was the Republican symbol. All of this added up to the Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina electoral commissions um, disallowing enough Democratic votes to award the electoral votes to Hayes. But those electoral commissions were... Republican-controlled reconstruction commissions, and so their authority was, like, their their credibility was limited. Uh, One of Oregon's three electors, um, Oregon, that's the Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina together add up to 19 electoral votes, Um, and then Oregon had the 20th disputed electoral vote. Um, One of Oregon's three electors was disqualified because of a conflicting role, and so the governor disqualified that elector and substituted a Democratic elector for the disqualified Republican elector. The two Republican electors both uh, reported that Oregon was casting three votes for Hayes. The Democratic elector reported that Oregon was going to cast two for Hayes and one for Tilden. So that's another disputed electoral vote. Hmm. We had that one in Oregon. We had Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Hayes was, uh, Hayes got the 185, but it was disputed with Democrats alleging foul play and fraud, um, leading to Congress establishing the Electoral Commission of 1877. This was a commission that was to consist of five members from the House, 
five from the Senate and five from the Supreme Court. And the intention was to have seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and one independent. Um, the independent was supposed to be Supreme Court Justice David Davis. He was, you know, kind of the independent. <laughs> but Democrats elected him to one of the Illinois Senate seats, perhaps trying to um, uh, sway his his uh, his opinion. Uh, he took the Senate seat, but recused himself from the commission. So uh, a new Supreme Court justice had to be chosen to take his place, um, and only Republican Supreme Court justices remained. So we ended up with eight Republicans and seven Democrats and zero independents on the uh, Electoral Commission. The Electoral Commission held meetings in the Supreme Court chamber uh, starting on February 1st of 1877, hearing arguments from lawyers on both sides. And then voted along party lines eight to seven to award all of the electoral votes to Hayes. <laughs> um, Congressman Abram Hewitt, who was the chairman of the DNC as well at the time, then challenged the electoral votes of Vermont. Vermont was not contested at all. So this was totally spurious. The Republican Senate voted to overrule the objection, but the Democratic House filibustered. Um, after 12 hours, the objection was overruled. Immediately, someone raised another spurious objection to the electoral votes from Wisconsin, also not contested. And there was another similar process with the uh, Republican Senate voting to overrule the Democratic House filibustering. Um, but eventually... The electoral votes were counted, and on March 2, 1877, Hayes finally officially won the presidency with 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184. Wow. The Compromise of 1877 is a phrase that you might have heard. It was uh, a phrase coined by uh, historian uh, C. Van Woodward in 1851. He claims there was an informal, unwritten deal for the Democrats to accept this outcome as legitimate on the condition that U.S. military forces would be withdrawn from uh, the remaining Confederate states, um, that one Southern Democrat would get a cabinet appointment, that the South would be allowed to deal with freed slaves as, uh, as it saw fit, um, and that certain economic benefits would be given to the South. And Woodward claims there were secret meetings um, at Wormley's Hotel uh, to work out the compromise between uh, the leadership of the two parties. And that's, I think that's, like, I think I learned that in my history books at some point. Hmm. Um, other historians, though, say there was no um, kind of backroom deal and point out that all the parts of this deal that did, in fact, come to pass were, were campaign promises that Hayes had made. Hayes Part of his platform was um, promising the South what he called home rule, um, and he had he had promised a, ca a cabinet appointment uh, to a Southern Democrat. Uh, the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library um, has an article about this, pointing out that although Hayes gets kind of saddled with um, ending Reconstruction, um, only two states, South Carolina and Louisiana, still had federal troops stationed at their state houses. Hayes uh, withdrew those troops to barracks within those states. Um, it was not as sweeping a change as it gets cast as. And Reconstruction was, for better or for worse, kind of slowly coming to an end. This wasn't, you know, a, a drastic change that Rutherford B. Hayes made by himself. Um, it was a process that had already been well underway. 
Um, so the Hayes presidency, he was a one-term president um, by explicit intent. He took office in a secret ceremony on March 3rd, in part because uh, the election had been so contentious, followed by a public inauguration on March 5th. The Democratic Congress stymied many of his efforts, um, especially with regard to the South. There was conflict over the enforcement acts that had been used to suppress groups like the KKK. Um, Congress tried to end that suppression. Hayes blocked them. Eventually, Congress got around him by refusing to fund the federal marshals who would enforce these laws. So that was a whole mess. But he did other things. Um, he was a big proponent of civil service reform, which he implemented to the extent possible by executive order, trying to move from uh, what's known as a spoils system, where positions are given to kind of political allies after um, after an election toward a merit system of appointments. He faced the Great Railway Strike of 1877. Um, he sent federal, federal troops to several states at governor's requests, setting precedent for future federal strike policy. Um, one of the big questions was, will federal troops protect private property? So, yes, yes. was the answer to that. <laughs> yes, yes, they will. I have never quite really gotten my head around... Um, the whole gold standard issue, like everyone had very strong opinions about the gold standard all throughout like the mm -hmm. 19th and into the early 20th century. This was like really a hot political issue that I can't bring myself to care about all that much. Um, <laughs> uh, so he was um, a strict gold standard guy. Um, there was some stuff about silver that I didn't totally understand, but he was very involved in silver coinage and policy around that. And dealing with greenback currency that had been issued during the war that was not backed by the gold standard. That was a, a tricky policy thing that he handled in his presidency. There were conflicts with Native American tribes, including the Nez Perce. In 1880, he embarked on the Great Western Tour, I think 70-something days. He was the second president to travel west of the Rockies, um, the first being Grant, who went to Utah. Mm -hmm. um, and he was the first president to travel to the West Coast. The Hayes White House was known for teetotaling. Uh, the First Lady was known as Lemonade Lucy, made them very popular with the Protestant ministers. The first telephone was installed in the White House during his administration uh, in 1879. Um, and he made two Supreme Court appointments, uh, John Marshall Harlan in 1877 and Stanley Matthew in 1881. And his presidency ended in 1881. He did not run for a second term. He was gratified to be followed by another Republican from Ohio, James Garfield. Um, and he took Garfield's victory as kind of a vindication um, of his contested election. After his presidency ended, he worked with educational charities and advocated for federal education subsidies, um, a number of important roles in kind of educational organizations. Um, he served as a trustee for Ohio State University. Uh, his wife, Lucy, died in 1889, um, and he died of complications from a heart attack in 1893. And uh, the first presidential library is the Rutherford B. Hayes Library, um, which is located in his Ohio home of Spiegel Grove. And uh, that's what I've got. Yeah. Cool. I, uh, Trying to trying to scale back the deep dives a little bit. Um, no, I think so that was... Uh... Hopefully that was an appropriate length. Yeah. No, I thought that was really good. 
Yeah, so that's Rutherford B. Hayes. Now we know about the election of 1876. Indeed, we do. Oh, all right. Are you ready for a quiz? Oh, I'm ready for a quiz. Are you kidding all me? All right. It's it's October in an election year. This is an election hijinks quiz. Yeah. Hi- hijinks and anomalies. Question one. America's first instance of someone losing the popular vote but ultimately winning the presidency took place in 1824. While Andrew Jackson won the plurality of both the popular vote and the electoral vote, he needed a majority. No one had the majority. There were four candidates. Since there was no majority, the election was decided by the House of Representatives, which awarded the presidency to John Quincy Adams. This all happened under the leadership of what Speaker of the House, a Kentuckian, who had also thrown his hat in the ring on this particular election? Oh, Kentuckian. Oh, there's a name that's coming to mind, and I'm just going to go with it because I really don't think I'm going to be able to get anywhere else. I'm going to say Henry Clay. You're correct. Yes. Henry Clay. Yes. Yeah, Henry Clay had also run for president, and uh, no love lost between him and Andrew Jackson. So. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> All right, 10 points. Question two. In the 1839 Massachusetts gubernatorial election... Marcus Morton defeated Edward Everett with 51,034 votes out of 102,066, winning with a mere two-vote margin and earning him what tongue-in-cheek nickname? Which, for the upcoming presidential election, 538 is pl- the website 538 is planning to define as winning the popular vote by a double-digit margin. So he won by two votes. And was given an ironic nickname, which means the opposite of that. I do not know where to begin with this. Um, I I don't even, I don't know. I'm not even coming up with like, what could, like, thinking of nicknames from, like, political nicknames. I, I don't know. All right. I'm okay. just going to tap on um, this. All right. Landslide is the answer. Marcus Landslide oh, Morton. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get it. I get it. All right. All right. Um, yeah. So so Marcus Landslide Morton, he won with 51,034 votes to his opponent's 51,032. All right. So you're at 10 points. Question three. In the 2000 election, the popular vote went to Al Gore, but the disputed electoral vote hinged on Florida where recounts led to detailed discussions of improperly punched ballots. The bit of paper that is supposed to be punched out completely was characterized on some ballots as hanging, swinging, or dimpled. What is the name of that punched out bit of paper? Also a male first name. That would be a Chad. That is a Chad. Chad. Yeah. (laughs) All right. You are at 20 points. And question four. Oh, I had like a little, a hanging chad is with one corner attached. A swinging chad is with two. Um, Mm. Yeah. And then a dimpled chad is like if it hasn't perforated the paper fully. All right. Question four. Representative Patsy Mink was the first woman of color elected to the national legislature and the first Asian American congresswoman. First elected in 1964, she left Congress to serve in Carter's administration 
and later returned to the House of Representatives, serving a total of 12 terms. She was elected one last time in 2002, even though she had died of pneumonia a few weeks before Election Day. What state did she represent? Oh. Okay, there's detail in there. Asian, ma- I'm, oh. Ooh, I don't, yeah, I don't know this person, so I, I have a couple of guesses. I'm, I'm thinking it is, I'm thinking it's West Coast or Hawaii. I know Hawaii had the first, like, the first Asian American, I think. I'll, I'll go with Hawaii. Hawaii is correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't actually know about her until I started researching this, um, but she seems like a cool figure. And after she was in Carter's administration, she, um, she returned and served in some local uh, capacities in Hawaii uh, before returning to the House of Representatives. Cool. Yeah. So you are at 30. Question five. Uh, let's switch for a moment to election hijinks in popular culture. Uh, what aptly named political thriller television series, which ran from 2012 to 2018, included in its second season a plot revolving around rigged voting machines in Defiance, Ohio, which threw the election to Fitzgerald Grant III? Uh... I have no idea about, like, the details of that, so I'm going to guess being a political show. I'm going to say Scandal. Scandal's correct. Okay. Uh, I have watched, I think, literally five minutes of that show. Uh, It's not a bad show. I've watched a couple seasons. Uh, Yeah, it's a fun show. It's all, it's all a little improbable, but, you know, enjoyable. I mean, it's um, TV. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, you're at 40 points. And our final category, we'll call it elections by the numbers. Okay. By the numbers tells me that I need to do something like 30 points. All right. 30 points. As we know, the current president won the electoral vote, but lost the popular vote by a margin of about 3 million votes. In millions, with a plus or minus 1 million error allowed, how many votes did Donald Trump receive? Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't remember the numbers. By the numbers should have told me to bet zero. Oh, man. I don't know. I'm going to say something like... I'm going to say 62 million. Oh, you're, you, you're, within, the, you're within the margin of error. We're, yes. we're calling that correct. The correct answer is 62.98 million. So we were looking for 62, oh. 63, or 64. So. Oh, it feels good. <laughs> All right. You are finishing this quiz with 70 points, despite my tortured writing. That's... No, no, it's fine. Uh, (laughs) Despite my utter desire to just tank on these quizzes, apparently. That was fun. That was fun. And it was nice to uh, talk about something that's not uh, recent (laughs) for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kind of just look at something that happened in the past and be like, yep, that's the way it was. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so hopefully listeners... Hopefully you got something out of this, and hopefully you also did well on the quiz. And uh, thank you for listening. 
And of course, thank you, Emily. Oh, always a pleasure. Um, listeners, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it could help. It would help us out if you would leave a rating or a review also. If you want to check out our Patreon, it is at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you don't want to check out our Patreon, maybe tell your friends about our podcast. They and you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables. We're on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our website is potentpod.com, and you can email us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com. That's right. Uh, so we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy and a dive. And I, I believe we are having uh, a guest, We have a right? special guest. And next week we have a special guest. We will have Mary Ann Borer, former Jeopardy champion. Uh, on the show with us, and she will be bringing a deep dive and a quiz. Woohoo! So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. <laughs> <laughs>